In August of last year, I preached a standalone sermon. It's, that means it's just not part of a sermon series. And I called it the Consumer Church. I challenged us with three things, to connect, to give, and to serve. My aim was to confront the ideology of the consumer mindset within the church, especially in the West, and this, this, that, this idea that the church is about me and my comforts. If you have conversations with people who have left churches, of which I am guilty of too, at the root of it is some consumerism. For far too long, and I realize this is a blanket statement, the idea is that if a church fits my needs and my wants, then I'll belong. And I have been to churches as well that they actually take surveys of those who attend so that they can better cater to the overall experience of those attending. Now, let me caveat this by saying there are good reasons to leave a church. There are good reasons to leave a church. But my question for us this morning is, as we look at this text in Mark, and, and again as Mark as a whole, when did becoming and being a Christian become more about my comfort and less about our death to our old self? Look, if you would, at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is one that we should have memorized and highlighted and underlined. Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me ask this. Are we content with coming to a Sunday morning gathering, plopping in a chair, listening to Kristen sing, nodding our heads at a sermon, and walking away unaffected, unchanged, and have zero influence on the culture? The question begs to be answered. Is a true Christian one who is influenced by the world or one who knows that this place is not their home? Let me end with this question in, in this introduction part. Is Jesus Lord of all or not at all? When we started this series, our goal was to answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And how does Jesus become king? As we get closer to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, that's kind of a, a pivot point in Mark, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the narrative will begin to transition and begin to look at Jesus from the angle of the one who is anointed by God to willingly give his life as a ransom for many. To think about God biblically is to think of God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, we see the Trinity at work and clearly displayed in moments like the baptism of Jesus and his transfiguration, to just name a few. One thing we need to keep in mind in the economy of the Godhead or the Trinity 
is that the father, not begotten or sent by anyone, sins or begets the son to accomplish for sinners what the son, in complete submission to the father, accomplishes in his life, death, and resurrection. He accomplishes salvation for the sinner. This is then later applied by the Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son. The gospel, listen, the gospel is a triune work of God. If God is a sending or a missional God, like author and theologian John Stott says, why would he stop sending? After the gospels are concluded, the dawn of a new age and the new covenant of Christ is born the age of the New Testament church. Listen, we are living in that moment in time now. Until Christ the King returns in the second advent, we are on mission not to live the American dream, not to store up for ourselves more stuff of future garage sales or build any kind of kingdom here on earth. But our mission is to go and make disciples. This is why you are a Christian. The moment God saves you is the moment you are sent by God to testify about him what he has done in his son. I'm sure some of you are like, man, Ricky, you came out swinging this morning, okay? But remember, if I can't preach a sermon to myself first, I can't preach it to you. So this is for all of us, okay? So let's take a deep breath. I'm not going to let off, but let's just take a deep breath. Let's read Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. The headline there says, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. It says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whatever you, whenever you, you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when, you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So I want us to pay attention to the headline there. The headline says, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. Remember, disciples are learners. We are disciples, and they are disciples. They continue to be. But the distinction is made that will, that will continue to be fleshed out. We will see in these seven verses that Jesus sends the 12 out with the authority he has been given. Disciples are students, apostles are the sent ones who are sent with the master's authority. Let's look at verse 7. It says, Jesus calls them or he summons the 12 men to himself. He calls them close. This is an intimate moment between him and his disciples. He calls them close to speak to them a very specific word or charge. And notice that Mark is very clear in how he sends them. He sends them two by two. Now, the question begs to be answered, why this language? Why would, we, why would Jesus say two 
by two. And why would Mark make it so important? This dated back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that speaks of the laws concerning witnesses. The idea was that one could speak the testimony and the other could verify. Therefore, Jesus sends them out in pairs to provide mutual protection and support to strengthen their individual capacities and to ensure that their message was confirmed by two witnesses. And the last part of verse 7 reminds us that Jesus sends them out with his authority over unclean spirits. They spoke on the master's behalf, and they also performed the works just as he did with the father's given authority. Listen, this is what's important about verse 7. They were not left alone. They were not left alone to do this work. Let's go to verses 8 and 9. As Jesus begins sending them out, he is very clear with his instructions about what to take and not take with them. He says, take a staff, it's like a walking stick. And it seemed, it seemed to be allowed so that they could ward off thieves and wild animals as they journeyed. But at the very heart of this, listen, at the very heart of what's being said here is that they are to leave all worldly possessions and only go with the clothes on your back and live completely dependent on God. And we find ourselves again at the gospel call of the life of a Christian here in verses 8 and 9. Are we too busy accumulating things for ourselves that stuff becomes our little g gods, or are we wholly dependent on God and his provision? Now listen, I'm not advocating here for a poverty type gospel. And I'm surely not, if you know me well, I'm surely not advocating for a prosperity type gospel. But I want these questions to diagnose our hearts. Where, listen, listen to this. Where do we find ourselves if everything we had was stripped away in a moment's notice. Think about if your house was on fire. God forbid that happened to anyone here. But if your house was on fire and the only thing you could get out with was the clothes on your back, where would we find ourselves? Would we find ourselves cursing God or trusting God? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. The charge to the 12 continues as he tells them how to live when you find yourself being hosted by gracious people in their homes. And then it's contrasted by what to do when that community doesn't want to hear this message of repentance. Simply, Jesus was saying, when someone invites you in, stay there. Stay there. Don't go house to house just because the accommodations don't fit your needs. And don't leave one house because you are offered better accommodations at another house. He says, stay there. Remember the words of James, James 5.12. It'll be up on the screen for you. James 5.12 says this. It says, but above all, my, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall 
under condemnation. Jesus says, let your word mean something. That when you're going to stay somewhere, when you're welcomed in by a gracious host, stay there. Don't go looking for better accommodations. Verse 11 is a stark warning for those who reject the message proclaimed by the apostles, the sent ones, and verified not only by two witnesses, but by the miracles that were performed. The text says, Jesus says, shake off the dust from your feet. So literally, they would remove their shoes at the edge of town, and they would clap them together and remove the dust from that place. This was to pronounce judgment on that community who had rejected the message and the messengers. This was a practice that was a tradition among Jews who would come to Gentile towns. Now remember, Jews and Gentiles, they didn't mix in that day. And they would do this to say Gentiles were pagan God-haters. Jesus tells us here, he tells his 12 here, if you are rejected even by Jews, and they will be, to practice the same sign of judgment on that community. Listen, the text says, as testimony against them. Pronounce woe on them, as the prophets would do, as Jesus often would do. This is a testimony against that community that they have hardened their hearts and rejected the message of the gospel. Verses 12 and 13. Let's look at those. The now 12 apostles, they do exactly as they are commanded. Mark doesn't give us any indication that they hem-hawed around or asked to go bury their father or make their, get their affairs order in first. They are given orders by their master, and they go and preach repentance and perform miracles. Both they preach and perform miracles under the authority that was given to them to do so. And then verse 13 is the fact that the miracles they were doing was verifying the message, casting out demons from the demon-possessed and anointing the sick with oil and healing them. That was verification of the message they brought. Listen, this is what it was doing. Let's not get caught up on the miracles. Let's get caught up on the fact that it was pointing to the one who would release us from Satan's tyranny and the sin's curse. This is saturated with gospel goodness. Listen, church, look at me for just a moment. The greatest miracle that ever happened is that God the Father would send his son to live in my place, to die in my place, to defeat death in my place, to ascend to his right hand and where he awaits to come and collect his church. The gospel is the greatest miracle. Do we pray for healing? Absolutely. Do we pray for deliverance from addiction and all other kinds of things? Absolutely we do. We pray for those things. We long for God to deliver us from this body of death. But that does not happen without the gospel. That is the greatest miracle, that we had nothing to offer God, and he offered up his son in our place. If we don't see that as the greatest miracle, we're going to get caught up on other things. 
and we're going to want from God, we're only going to want from God his stuff and not him. Listen, ultimately, what heaven has to offer, church, listen, is Jesus Christ himself. Any story that says, oh, I, went, I died for a little bit and I went to heaven and I saw all these beautiful things and, and all this stuff, but they never mention Jesus, what are we doing? What are we believing? A f- other than a feel-good message. But we will. Listen, if you are in Christ and you die today, you will be met by your Creator. You will be welcomed by nail-scarred hands. Isn't that comforting to the Christian? The one who created us will welcome us. Not his stuff. His stuff will not welcome us, but he will welcome us. This is the greatest miracle. The text, this text in Mark is a micro picture of the commissioning of the church later in Acts. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is another one we need to have memorized, highlighted, underlined. It says this, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to where? To the end of the earth. You, Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses, to go and testify, to proclaim, to speak about me. We have been commissioned by the Lord Jesus to go out into the world to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So let's do some diagnosing of where we are with this. Here's some questions to think through. And you don't have to raise your hand or give an answer here. These are rhetorical. When was the last time you presented the gospel to someone? Let's think about this. When was the last time you and I presented the gospel to someone? When was the last time you read a book on evangelism? When was the last time you asked someone in leadership here at Redeemer to help train and equip you for evangelism. And lastly, let me ask this. When was the last time you begged God in prayer to save someone? You pled with God on your knees, tears streaming down your face, begging God to save someone. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's someone you love dearly who's a friend. Maybe it's someone at work. When was the last time you and I begged God to save someone? If it comes down down to it, when we think about evangelism, we're, just to be honest, we're afraid of a few things when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone. We're afraid of the fact that we might say the wrong thing. We're afraid that we'll not have all the answers to a question that may arise. Or we're afraid they will reject the message altogether. And ultimately that feels like they're rejecting us. Listen, 
our call to be evangelists, which we are all called as Christians to be evangelists, is to be faithful. Faithful to the message of the gospel. Not witty, not winsome, not the theologically astute, or know all the minutia of each doctrine that scripture presents? Do we want you to grow in your knowledge and the love of the Lord Jesus? Yes, and his word, yes, absolutely. But rest secure that God qualifies those that he calls. He doesn't call those that think they're already qualified. Colossians chapter one, verse 12, should be up on the screen. If not, you can turn there. Colossians 1.12 says this. Listen to the words of Paul. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has what? Qualified you. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? He has qualified us in Christ Jesus by sealing us with his spirit for the day of redemption. Are we holding on to our stuff so tightly that we are missing the call God has placed on our lives? How many of us have seen someone pass from this life to the next and take their stuff with them? Honestly, look at me for just a moment. Listen, how many of us have, have been to a funeral and there's a U-Haul attached to the hearse? None of us, none of us have seen anybody pass from this life to the next and take their stuff with them. So the question is, why are we accumulating things for ourselves? Well, Ricky, you know, I want my kids to have this stuff. Let me just say this, your kids are not going to care. Your kids are just going to have to deal with your stuff one day. Here's the challenge for us today. Connect. Give, serve. How? Connect in deeper ways to the, body, to the body here at Redeemer in covenant partnership, committing to a gospel community, and to discipleship. To give financially and sacrificially. To serve the body of Christ, your community, and the lost. Those three ways. To believe the gospel, to know the gospel, and to speak the gospel. This is the call on all of our lives. I want to end this way. C.T. Studd, uh, a British missionary in the 19th century who gave up his great family wealth to be a missionary in China, India, and Africa, he penned the following poem, and I would like for us to think, think on it as we end. This is only one life will soon be passed by C.T. Studd. He says... Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one life, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love and my fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come up. <clears throat> we try to be as clear as possible here at Redeemer that there are two invitations that are made when we gather like this on the Lord's Day. The first is, if you are not in Christ, the greatest miracle is not your bodily healing, is not even a mental healing that might need to take place. The greatest miracle is salvation. The fact that God would send his son in the place of sinners, a holy and infinite and perfect God who was not lonely, who was not looking for something to do in eternity past, but wholly satisfied in himself sends his son into the world to die for sinners. This is the greatest miracle, is that he would raise spiritually dead sinners to life. The invitation is open for you this morning. Do not harden your hearts. Do not reject the message of Christ. But come to Christ, repent of your sin, and place your faith in his atoning sacrifice this morning. The last invitation I want to make is for those of us who are in Christ. And it's simply this. Is Christ Lord of all or not at all? Listen, it needs to be made clear that if Jesus is Savior, he must be Lord. If he is Savior, he must be Lord of every square inch of your life. Now, I could stand up here as the pastor and say, you need to be more like me. You know, like every, every 
part of my life is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would be found a liar. I have to confess sin daily to the Lord Jesus. And by his spirit, he leads me to repentance in his kindness. So my question is to you, are we holding on to our stuff so tightly that we don't want to let it go, that one day he'll come and remove it from our grip? Is he Lord of all or not at all? I'll be in the back of the room. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you want to talk through anything, anything you've heard this morning, maybe, maybe it's a song that we sang, maybe it's the sermon, maybe it's just something that's going on in your life, I would love to counsel you. I'll be in the back of the room. Let's pray.